0: Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues.
1: Today, we're more distributed and more digitally connected than ever before. Digital communications are now the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smarsh, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smarsh enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business-critical signals in more than 80 digital communications channels, from email, to WhatsApp, to Zoom, and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smarsh portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory, and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smarsh serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. We do our best with what we have
2: but we can't be perfect. I think that is possibly the one thing that i want to get out there. I know that people individually are understanding when you talk to them, but if they
0: think we're getting something very, very wrong, then tell us. Today's guest outlines how the UK's markets watchdog is adapting the way it works and resources its teams to ensure it is fit to meet its ever-expanding remit. She calls on city workers to be a bit more understanding about the Financial Conduct Authority's limits as it navigates this growing to-do list to speak out if the regulator is getting something very, very wrong, and for finance bosses to speak up if they want to find a way for their employees to help the FCA with its workload. She also discusses what changes the FCA wants to see amongst the financial services companies and individuals it supervises, and the cultural red flags that the watchdog is most sensitive to. Emily Shepherd worked as Director of Customer Services and Change at pensions group Aegon UK, and as Chief Operating Officer for Europe, the Middle East and Africa at Bank of New York Mellon, before joining the FCA in early 2021. Since then, she has led the FCA's authorisations division, which the regulator describes as the gateway for firms and individuals aiming to work in finance. In 2022, she added the role of FCA COO to her remit and took on responsibility for future-proofing the regulator via its transformation agenda. Hi, Emily.
3: Welcome to Following the Rules.
0: Thank you. Thank you for inviting
2: me,
3: Lucy. Well, for those who don't know about you and your role, let's start with a brief summary of your role, in the FCA, and
2: your goals for twenty twenty three. Sure. So my roles fall into two hats. One is I am the executive director for authorisations, which is a bit of a focus area at the moment, and the other role is chief operating officer across the FCA. So my goals: we've been working really hard on the backlog for authorizations over the last year and a half we now have our queues so we call them queues the waiting applications in a reasonably good length that we think we can manage in the manual way that we manage them now and this year is going to be all about automation so i'm actually really excited about this year we have the automated form going out to a very small pilot group in february so that's our beta And we're aiming to get the thing called a long form A, which is the application form for senior managers, hopefully coming out in May, subject to how that beta goes. So that for me is one of the main focus areas for authorizations. As the chief operating officer, what I'm trying to do at the FCA is bring in a bit more commercialism, a bit more client-centricity and efficiency and effectiveness of how the FCA works. Now, I haven't been at the FCA all that long. I've been here for nearly two years. But before then, I had 20 plus years in the city, so I worked with the FCA, but on the other side of the fence. And one of the frustrations I had being in that seat was you could ask the FCA a question, and sometimes it could take an awfully long time to get an answer back. Sometimes it's the bouncing between different departments, different divisions, no one quite knowing what the right response was. And so that's something that I really want to improve.
3: Okay. And you mentioned the authorisation backlog. Yes. And you were hired in part to help the FCA speed up its approval of new business processes yes. and appointment of senior individuals within those or as it's known, authorisations processes following complaints that authorisations had slowed to unsustainable levels. Yes. Could you give us an update on what exactly you're doing to speed up authorisations, approval processes?
2: So the situation at the FCA was our perimeter, so the things that we cover had expanded substantially particularly things around senior management regime as a case in point because it's a particularly high volume application group so that had expanded and simply the number of people who were looking at the application forms hadn't expanded enough to deal with that sort of volume so in time people were having to wait longer and longer for the applications even to be picked up and looked at and then there was processing At the same time, so this one was a double whammy, at the same time, we had the Gloucester report that was taken out on the FCA. And the recommendations from the Gloucester report was that we should have a higher bar of entry into the FCA so that we didn't authorise firms, we didn't authorise people, unless we were absolutely sure that they had earned that badge. So having a higher entry point meant that we had to do more checks on individuals, on firms, we had to look at the resilience of firms. We had to look much more at the background of individuals. So naturally, if you're doing more checks, that's going to slow the process down further. So as I said, it's a bit of a double whammy. And so when I came the queue for authorizations was enormous, but it had some particular areas that I chose to highlight as the things that I talk about externally. There are a number of queues, we look at them all But the two that I tend to talk about are senior management regime and change in control. Very, very different things. So senior management regime, high volume, we want to make it a quick turnover. And that applies to other applications as well where we're looking at individuals. So they're individual representation too. On change in control, we have 60 days in which to make a determination or a decision on a case. We are allowed to pause the case but only once. And only for a maximum of 30 days. If the information we have isn't quite enough, we need to ask more questions. So that one's a very time-limited, time-boxed process, changing control. And if we haven't made a determination, it's an automatic yes. So that one's about preventing harm. You see the management regime, we aim to do it in three months. So those two different queues were the ones that I talk about the most. And back in December 21, the total number of applications we had in our queue was 12,500. We are now around about the 6,000 mark. It goes up and down a little bit, but that one is a much more sustainable number for us to handle. So how do we do it? First thing you do is throw more resources at the problem. So we hired about a hundred people in that first year, a hundred people who we had to find, bring in, train, but as soon as they were in place, those queues started to come down. We had a month by month target to reach. We augmented the teams as well with some third parties. Not something that had been done particularly at the FCA before. So we brought in DLA Piper for the change in control and an organisation called BDO for the senior management regime. So those two things are great, but it doesn't really change the process, and that's what we had to do. So in the background, we've been mapping out our process, looking at what we're doing and what's a smarter way of approaching it. We've also been developing an automated form application. Now that, when you filled it in correctly, you know when you've missed a box, you know where the tracking is on that form. And it's not until the form is complete that you can press the button and it gets sent to the firm who are doing the assessment. So that form type, that validation of the information before it is sent through to us is going to help us. We have a number of application forms that are genuinely incomplete, where people have put something in order to almost book their place before they actually need it, which is a painful waste of time for us because we look at it and then we have to throw it out again and then it comes back in again. So the automation of forms, will speed that up. Once it comes through to us, we are then going to augment those forms with information we have on the firms already, and that completed form will go straight to a case officer. So altogether, that automation will speed up that interim process for applications, and that will enable us not
3: just to sustain that level, but also to speed up. Okay. So for those who aren't familiar, the Gloucester report was a look into the FCA's failure to prevent the collapse of the mini-bond provider London Capital and Finance. Change of control refers to individuals or companies that wish to acquire or increase control in a firm, and they need prior FCA approval to do that. And the SMR is a set of rules introduced to hold bank bosses more accountable for their actions. Senior individuals that hold certain functions must get approval for carrying out their role from the FCA. And you mentioned that the backlog halves yep. from 12,000 to around 6,000. Do you have a goal in terms of the numbers of pending approvals
2: on that? My ideal queue is somewhere between five and 6,000. As I said, because we're bringing in a lot of automation, it may be that we can deal with a larger queue in the future. But at the moment, between 5,500 and 6,000 is reasonable. And that means we can keep up with the service levels where we have them.
0: Okay. So
3: actually, at the moment, you have met that goal. Yes, and we're continuing to burn it down because we'd love to get ahead. And you mentioned that the FCA's perimeter has expanded and also that you see a real requirement for the FCA to have an eye to that commercial aspect of things. And we're speaking as the UK government's series of post-Brexit reforms for the city have ensured that the FCA will be gaining responsibility for new asset classes and a proposed secondary competition objective, which would ensure the FCA needs to keep an eye on encouraging competition in the UK financial services Mm. sector. I'm interested to know what challenges do you receive arising from the introduction of such new aspects of the FCA's agenda alongside this ongoing push for the FCA to speed up authorizations of new businesses? And how do you think the FCA can best balance all the requirements it has currently and will have coming down the track?
2: Yeah, OK. So for the last three years and this year included, we've been working on transforming the FCA into something that is fit better for the future. We want to have that place as an acclaimed regulator, if you like, for the world. Within that, we think about it internally as being more agile, being more assertive, being more innovative. So those three words are at the heart of everything we are talking about, and that includes digital transformation. We collect a lot of information, we collect a lot of data. Our ideal is to be able to use that data to do some predictive analytics in authorizations in future, maybe some artificial intelligence, maybe making the decisions automatically. But that is our ambition, to use the information we have in a more assertive and smarter way. So the reason why I bring all that up when it comes to what is the future of post-Brexit and what is the future given secondary objectives for competition, etc. it's really important and it's a real strong point about the UK that we have an independent regulator. And that independence means that we can get that consistency, that we can work with firms, we can work with consumers to, to do the right thing. And in doing that, it brings automatically a level of competition into the market. The trick, I guess, on that secondary competition objective is to be able to measure our effectiveness there. So as COO, looking at the effectiveness and efficiency of the FCA and how that translates, getting quick answers, being consistent being really clear and giving decisions as fast as we can. For me, I think that helps that competition. It helps that certainty, but also being rigorous as well. We're not going to say yes all the time. It is about being rigorous and maintaining standards for the UK too. Now, other departments will have other metrics as well. So I know that something that has been talked about a bit is about listings. So are we solely responsible for the efficiency or the amount of listings there are in LSE? I don't think we are necessarily, but we are a contributing factor. So it's just about getting that right measure in place that we can hold ourselves accountable.
3: Okay. So you don't perceive there being a particular challenge around the need to speed up approval of new businesses at a time when you're going to have a number of businesses to approve and perhaps a bit of political pressure to make the UK a welcome space for new asset classes as many new businesses as possible?
2: I think everybody has the same ambition. So you take political pressure to make the UK a place to bring more asset classes, etc. I don't think there's any particular conflict there. I think everybody in the UK wants the UK to succeed from a business point of view whether it brings in lots more applications again the idea of automating things is to have that flexibility so when we have new things come into our perimeter that we can deal with them one example of that may be it's not in here yet but buy now pay later so if buy now pay later comes in it may be that it comes in a way that just captures half a dozen firms it may come in a way that captures A lot more firms. And I need to ensure that authorisation is set up to
3: handle that volume, to do it with speed, but also to maintain that high bar. You mentioned buy now, pay later. That is a way for consumers to buy goods on credit and pay for them later. And there are plans afoot to strengthen the rules for such schemes. It's about creating an authorisation process that is automated enough to be adaptable enough that it will still be a rigorous process, regardless of the volume and the novelty (laughs) of the businesses that have been approved. Yes. Okay. You recently gave a speech on improving culture in the UK financial services sector. And in that, you said you saw culture, and I'm quoting, as being the personality habits and ethos of the organisation and that the FCA expects senior leaders to nurture healthy cultures in the firms they lead. Many regulated firms are currently undertaking cultural assessments or culture audits to help them gain a better understanding of the cultures and factors influencing poor cultural outcomes. What advice do you have for those undertaking such work? And what would the FCA like to see measured or achieved through such initiatives? Culture is really
2: important to an organisation. It defines the organisation in so many different ways. But it's really hard to measure culture. Every organisation will say we need a more diverse and inclusive workforce. And everybody will say that because they understand the theory. They understand the rhetoric. The difference between firms is some firms... Absolutely commit to doing something, to making sure that they do have a diverse workforce, that they have inclusive practices, that they are ensuring that everybody has that same opportunity to speak up, that people feel safe. Some firms do that in a very, very proactive way, and some firms just slightly keep it at that rhetoric. Now, I don't think it's for the FCA to put specific targets in place. But what we are potentially doing is a more comply or explain approach on diversity inclusion. So we're encouraging it because it is important. But it's different for big firms versus smaller firms as well. So large firms have the pockets, they have the money to do this. Smaller firms, it's very hard if you're a firm of three people to make sure it's completely diverse and inclusive. So there's a sort of reality as well that goes with it. But it is about challenging, being active, being inclusive, hearing from people you may not normally l- listen to. How is it for them? What is their experience? And my personal advice is get people early on, understand what it's like for them early on before they get institutionalised.
3: Okay. So you see measuring diversity and inclusion as a core aspect of cultural assessments that a firm might be undertaking?
2: I think measuring absolutely does help, but measuring and analyzing so people do employee surveys again more likely larger firms that are doing it but employees surveys or performance ratings if you're doing annual or biannual performance ratings cut them by that diversity lens see what's happening underneath them you may be able to unveil something that isn't totally obvious so it's not just about counting it's not just about bar charts
3: okay and often cultural assessments will look at positive attributes that firms should yes, of aim for. <laughs> um, but are there any negative cultural outcomes that you would like firms to keep an eye on? The one that we are
2: possibly most sensitive to is where people do not feel they can speak up. So one of the main features of good culture is a firm where people can speak up when they can say when they think something isn't right. If they feel that there isn't that psychological safety, maybe they feel that they're putting their career in jeopardy or they're not playing the game, then that's going to lead to a bad outcome for that firm. It may hide things that are happening underneath that actually people need to be aware of. And so that's possibly one of the most egregious
3: cultural challenges. And does the FCA have any expectations as to how firms can measure the openness within the organisation to encourage people to speak up? I have talked a lot about metrics and the importance of measuring,
2: and you would expect that from a COO. But it's hard to measure culture. It's probably more about... What does it feel like? Are you hearing things in lift? If you're the CEO of a large organization, take the lift with everybody else. Go and eat in the canteen with everybody else. Listen to the chatter. What is the language that's being used? What's the particular language of that organization?
3: That will help to give an idea of how it feels. Okay. And in that speech on culture that I just mentioned, again, I'm quoting, you said, our role as a regulator is to lead by example, and we do care about culture as it informs conduct, and that is what we regulate. Could you tell us more about what the FCA is doing to lead by example, or what it plans to do to lead by example? And is the FCA undertaking its own cultural assessment, and what would you like to achieve through that, if so?
2: Yeah. Walking the talk super important for anybody, particularly for a regulator. So we do all sorts of things that perhaps you might not expect us to do. Senior management regime being one example, getting that accountability. That's something that we have put in as a regulator. So I have that description of my senior management functions, an SMF, even though I don't actually fall into that regime. It's just making sure that we know it works for us as well, that we can feel it walking in the shoes of others. So that is one example of walking the talk. But specifically on culture, we've had a lot of conversations on culture across the transformation program. We have put in analysis, as I just described. So we have looked at our employee scores, and we've looked at them through those diversity metrics. We have put those lenses on to see how it feels for different types of people. One of the areas that I am particularly conscious of is the performance lens so we have found some pockets where we need to do some work and we are working across the organization to get consistency in the way performance is done the way that we have changed our paying grading recently has been to take out an annual bonus but to make sure that everybody is measured they have goals at the beginning they're measured mid-year they're measured at the end of the year against that performance not just on personal performance, but also across the FCA, inclusion performance. So are you working well as a team? Have you got those behaviours that we're expecting as well as your own personal? What did you do? So that is altering the culture. Another piece we did is we have published a three-year strategy. And the FCA always published a strategy. It tended to be a one-year strategy. But this three-year strategy has got those outputs at the end. So those outcomes from our strategy, we are holding people accountable for internally as well. We want to not just say what we're going to do, but prove that we've done it at the end. So those are some of the ways that culture is changing within the FCA.
3: Okay. And you mentioned performance lens. Could you explain what you mean by that specifically for those that might not be familiar?
2: So if you have a performance grading across a population, we use a scale one to five. Others can have different scales, I'm sure. But we have those grades across. We'll look at a gender lens. So if you take women or those who identify as women versus men and see how those curves play out. In that particular example, we've found that there is a slight gender bias where the women tend to collect around that midpoint and that the men's graph tends to use the full one to five. So looking at that and saying, what does that mean? Is that statistically important? What can we do about it if it is important?
3: So that's an example. Okay. Okay. And I would like to get to the FCA's review of its performance-related pay, which was in the press a substantial amount yeah. last year. But before I go there, again, referencing this speech on culture, you did mention the consumer duty as being one of the biggest policies that the FCA had unveiled in recent years that will do the most to address conduct Following the rules, listeners are very interested to hear more details on the FCA's thinking or some of the requirements underpinning the new consumer duty. Do you have any advice you can share on that front?
2: So the new consumer duty is coming in July. It's a very different way of doing regulation. It's different for us. It's going to be different for everybody else as well. Because instead of creating a list of rules and tick lists that you can make sure that you comply with every single piece, it's more of a guidance than anything else. And the reason why it's a guidance is because we want people to get the spirit of it. We want people to embed it within the organizations and we need it to be flexible so that larger firms will have a different approach to smaller firms. New consumer duty is about getting the right outcomes for consumers. It's about making sure that they have products that they can understand, that they get at the right time, that it actually supports their needs. There's no overselling. There's no underselling. It's about making sure the language around documents is plain English. Everyone can understand it, that it's accessible as well. So we're making recommendations. For example, the recommendation that communication is test it with a group. Now, it won't apply for everything. It may be that this is just a one-off letter to somebody. That would be slightly stupid to test it with a large population group before you send one letter out. Or it may be something that is incredibly urgent. You need to tell everybody now that cash points aren't working Or tell everybody now there's been a security breach. That doesn't need testing. It's more important to get the message out. So there is a risk balance. We see particularly around this time when you've got the cost of living challenges. It's helping to put the consumer at the center of what the business is doing. We are looking for champions for the consumer at board level. We want firms to take it really, really seriously. Now, it's predecessor because, again, I can talk from previous experience, the treating customers fairly, I know, had become a bit of a tick box exercise. I know because I did some of that and created those boxes to tick. New consumer duty is looking at some of the failings of that. And I'm not saying it failed completely. It had some success. Of course it did. But it's about building on that and bringing it much more into the culture of the organization. If people want to know more, I should do a pitch for this. We are doing a series of podcasts ourselves. So please do look at FCA website, listen to those podcasts. We are putting examples out. We know it's a very different way of doing it. People want some concrete examples to explain what it is that we mean and
3: we are trying to service that need. And are you able to elaborate on what aspects of the new consumer duty those podcasts will focus on because listeners have expressed interest in the consumer duty product testing requirements, for example? Yes, absolutely.
2: That product testing is one example of a podcast we're doing. But they are published on the FCA website. If there's a need or want to do more,
3: then just let us know. Okay. Let us know. The door's open for all questions on consumer duty. Absolutely. And we have talked about performance related pay briefly and the FCA has recently undertaken a review of performance related pay within its own ranks and that has sparked increased focus on the FCA's remuneration generally. The potential for the FCA to face resourcing issues if too many of its staff opt to move back to better pay roles in the private sector. Do you have any comments on that challenge? Yeah, so the best challenge or best information
2: I can possibly give you is an idea of how many people have actually joined the FCA recently. So since 1st of April 22 to 30th of November 22, we've had 863 colleagues joining the FCA. We've obviously had some people leave as well. We've had 493 leave. From that, you can quickly calculate that we are increasing the number of roles here at the FCA as well. And we do expect to continue to expand our headcount steadily to meet a growing remit and to meet resource requirements. For example, a future regulatory framework, which is going to be a major undertaking in the next year or two, not only for the FCA, but also for firms out there. And we're trying to think quite innovatively about ways that we can work with firms to get through this substantial task.
3: And the 493 that left is that over the same yeah time? yeah that's
2: the same time period.
3: So your response to those that would say that the FCA's changes to its performance rate of pay will create a resourcing issue for the FCA as its workload is increasing substantially could be what? Would be
2: we are still able to attract talent into the FCA. The FCA is a really interesting place to come and spend some time. If you are working in the city, it does absolutely no harm to have the FCA on your CV. It shows that you understand what the city is about. And getting the spirit of regulation, it helps support resilience in business in the future.
3: Okay. And you mentioned the future regulatory framework. Are you able to briefly summarize what that project involves?
2: The future regulatory framework is an enormous project. The idea of it is that we look at all that regulation, all of those laws that were transcribed from Europe post-Brexit, and we're looking at their efficacy. So how effective are they? Is there anything that we should change? Is there anything we should do before we transcribe them again into a lower level of UK law? They're already obviously transcribed into UK law, but this is about retranscribing. Otherwise, those rules will expire. So obviously, we're excited about this as a challenge. It is a great opportunity as well. And we're working with Treasury, so with HMT, to get the right timeline and level and depth there. It is an enormous undertaking, not just for the FCA, but it's also an enormous undertaking for HMT, who have to sign up for all, the, all these changes too, and for firms out there. So the traditional way of working is for us to write consultation papers for firms to respond to or similar, and then we come out with some results from the consultation paper, then we come out with the final rules, and it's a quite a long process. Now, one of the conversations we've had with our panels, we have panels of firms who support us, and act as friendly challengers to us, and we bounce ideas off of them too. So I recently met with the practitioners panel and gave them this as an example of a challenge. How can we do this more efficiently and effectively with firms? Is there a more innovative way of doing this? Can we disrupt the process that we have now to make it easier for everybody? So the panel have accepted that challenge, and they have gone away to think about it. So looking forward to their answer.
3: When's that answered you?
2: We have panel meetings every month, so I'll ask them again next month.
3: Okay, so... We have referenced a number of times during this conversation the FCA's efforts to ensure it remains adequately resourced amid this period of time where its remit is seemingly ever-expanding. There have been recent suggestions the FCA should consider introducing a formal secondment programme, enabling private sector firms to second staff to the watchdog for varying periods of time. What are your thoughts on those suggestions? We have a number of senior advisors to advise us on decisions that
2: we're making broadly. We have different panel groups We have a panel for listings, we have a practitioner panel. We are incredibly lucky to have CEOs of some major firms there, and they are so open and supportive. We have a consumer panel, we have a small practitioners panel to bring that small business voice into. So we are supported, we do have a lot of voices come in. And I would also mention that in the hiring that we have brought a lot of people in from finance... So I have hired a director into authorizations who came from Cap. The reason why I thought he was great as an authorizations lead is because in his time, he's done processing, he's done operations, he's done know-your-client business. So there are lots of things we can learn there. He's also worked with a lot of fintechs and he's worked with crypto, so he knows that market. So we're refreshing that talent in from the market constantly the idea of secondments, I love the idea of secondment. I think it's great for people to come spend some time with the regulator as to whether there's a formal way of doing it. I think if anyone is interested, come and speak to us. We're humans, come and speak to us and let's see
3: if we can make it work. Okay. So, you mentioned TPI Cap, which is a large city broker. Yes. Yeah. So do you have an informal secondi program in place with the FCA at <laughs> the moment? Then-
2: the Condi program we have tends to be in and out of other regulators and elements of the civil service, so HMT. I can't actually think of one example at the moment where we've got a secondi from business, but we are very used to bringing secondis in and to lending people out as well. I would note, however, clearly with firms externally, we do have to be conscious of conflicts of interest, and we would find ways of managing
3: that, I'm sure. Because that is what I was just about to say, is that actually the concern around establishing a formal common programme is that managing conflicts of interest, where you have someone from a regulated business coming into the regulator. How and you sure manage their, that. that. The information they're party to is not going out where it shouldn't. But you're not concerned by that, by the time.
2: No, I think there are ways around it. So clearly, I came in from regulated businesses, and so those conflicts had to be managed, and so where the businesses that I have worked before happily walk out of the room if those things are tabled.
3: Okay. So on the comment program idea, you're open to it. It's not a no.
2: It's not a no. In fact, it may become a yes. <laughs> so I would suggest that firms absolutely talk to us if you're interested in it.
3: So any firms that might have potential sort of they would like to send to the regulator, they just give you a call and, and talk through how that might yeah. work. see how it might work.
2: Again, in a practitioner panel, and I bring that panel out just because I spoke to them last week, that's something that I know is in their heads. Could they make it work? Is it something that would bring them value back to their firm as well?
3: Okay, so the practitioner panel was already considering the yeah. formal second program.
2: Well, it's considering whether it could work.
3: Okay. What would you say is a common misconception the market may have about the FCA that we like correct? Correct. well there are
2: probably a few but I think the biggest misconception if I had a magic wand and I could change one thing I would want people to realize what they probably already know and that is we can't stop all harm it is not possible we're not going to catch absolutely every fraudster every scammer out there we do our best with what we have but we can't be perfect I think that is possibly the one thing that I want to get out there. I know that we've had some really good press recently. So that was good. Crypto was a bit of a mixed story this year. So originally, I think people were very concerned about the time we were taking and the fact that we were rejecting quite so many firms. But that story has recently changed where it's proven out that we were rejecting firms perhaps for the right reason. So a bit more understanding. Sorry, that sounds like I want everyone to be nice to the regulator, but a bit more understanding that we are not perfect, but we do our best.
3: Okay, because I was going to ask what we would like the city reaction to be to us. I would like the city
2: to help, really.
3: I know that
2: people individually are understanding when you talk to them, but if you think we're getting something very, very wrong, then tell us, talk to us. We are open, we're all after the same thing. So keep communicating, keep advising, keep telling us what you think we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing. And if you think we're missing a trick, again, tell us.
3: Okay, well, that's been a very
0: informative conversation. We've covered a lot of ground. So thank you very much for your time. We have.
2: Thank you very much, Lucy.
0: You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.